Good morning. This is Pastor Todd. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. This week, I am sharing a message for the church. I trust the Lord uses it to encourage and build you up. And here is this week's message. Up here, I don't have a PowerPoint, um, but uh, I title my sermons just for my own uh, reference points. We're doing 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, we're going through the series. Byron kicked us off last week with uh, 1 Timothy 1. And uh, we had a really good like show of know, example, probably the best word, of like a fatherly figure in the faith praying for the spiritual movement of the Holy Spirit into a childlike figure of the faith when he had Pamela come up and he prayed for her. What a really powerful model uh, to show kind of what Paul and Timothy's relationship was like. This father-son type relationship. Uh, this whole letter is from Paul directly to Timothy um, about specifics in ministry as he stationed in Ephesus. And so we're going to go into a little bit of uh, the historical context because, in my opinion, it's very important to understand that context to see why Paul wrote certain things in this passage the way he did. Um, and so we're going to go with that. So my title for this is Resisting the Zeitgeist because, you know, I like fun titles. Zeitgeist is basically the, the cultural... Um, like area, like like the the culture of an area, the, the way things are thought of, the way things are uh, implemented, mental patterns in the culture, things like that. Technical term, the German term is Zeitgeist. So anyway, there's your thirty dollar word. So I'll, I'll try not to give any more of those today. I promise. <clears throat> so in our lives, we can we can look at history, and we can see that the dates on the calendars will change. And we can see that new technology happens, right? At some point, somebody invented a circular piece of wood or a circular piece of stone, and voila, a wheel. And now they can carry heavy things, right? Technology. Now we have computing power on our phones that are more powerful than the rockets that uh, had the equipment on the moon. Like our phone can do a thousand times more than what the computers did on the rockets. So technology happens. But... To, uh, to kind of resound the idea of King Solomon in Ecclesiastes, human character always reveals itself, especially fallen human character. It reveals itself. It's consistently, it doesn't matter what the, what the zeitgeist is, right? It doesn't matter what the culture is, what the date on the calendar is. Fallen human nature is consistently destructive to both community and to an interrelationship with God. Like our fallenness destroys relationship. It destroys communities. It destroys our connection with God. It can even destroy churches. Look at all of the warnings that come out of Revelation for those seven churches. I mean, I think Philadelphia is the only one that didn't have a bad mark against them. Like Ephesus. Like, you started out so strong, right? They burned, what was it, roughly $50 million worth of witchcraft material when they became uh, believers. And then he's saying, if you don't get back to your first love, I'm going to snuff out your candle. And if you look at history, if we go over there today, there's no church in Ephesus right now. So these fallen human characters 
um, destroy relationships. <clears throat> so today, as we continue our series on 1 Timothy, we're going to do chapter 2, if you're going to follow along in your Bibles, whether analog or digital, your preference. <clears throat> we're going to see that the 21st century America isn't the first time in the first place that we've seen an elevation, like an unnatural, unhealthy elevation of femininity at the cost of denigrating masculinity. It's not the first time that we've seen trends of men emasculating themselves to become more feminine. It's not the first time that we've seen a lot of these hot topics today happening. And we're going to look at that in the history of Ephesus, where Timothy is stationed in this letter. <clears throat> so as we look at this context in Ephesus, uh, in the words that Paul wrote to Timothy, we can see characteristics of some of today's favorite hot topics, right? These are hot topics. People just like to lob grenades at each other over this stuff. So we're going to look at some of that. You, if you've looked at the news at all in the last probably 10 years, you've probably heard terms like toxic masculinity, third wave feminism. Like what happened to the first and second wave? I don't know, but apparently there's a third wave. Um, equity. Maybe we've heard the term equity, which is not the same as equality. It's somehow different. Um, so this equitable selection of leadership, right? Uh, the whole transgender movement, and so on and so forth. Pick your hot topic term. Before we hit those points, we're going to go into the scripture, right? So we, I think the most important thing in practicing our faith, and even in preaching, is not how eloquent the preacher is, it helps. It's not how convincing the arguments are. It is what the scripture says. And everything else is secondary, a.k.a. commentary, a.k.a. like looking deep into it. But first and foremost, scripture says that faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? The word of God. So that's always going to be one of the most important parts of my sermons is that if I'm going to do a passage of scripture, we're going to read that passage of scripture before I get into any commentary on it. It's extremely important. So I'm going to read 1 Timothy 2. So bear with me. It's only 15 verses. I mean, so you can time me if you want. It should probably take less than three minutes. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is the NIV, in case you're wondering. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decent and decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. 
Now there's a hot button topic in the church, and we'll get to it. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing and um, if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. So that's chapter 2. It doesn't seem to sit well with a lot of modern movements. You know, especially if we take the traditional interpretation of it. Uh, we're going to look at the historical context and kind of shake this passage a little bit and see what we can pull out of it for today. Does that sound good? <clears throat> okay, so first up, historical context. Here's, here are the big points. Um, sorry, no PowerPoint. You just got to listen. <sighs> Important context points, right? <clears throat> Timothy is ministering in Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter. We can find that in, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 3. I want you to stay in Ephesus where you were when I was doing all this other stuff. Do some ministry there. And he says, don't let them uh, disregard you because of your young age. Um, you can go through that again. You can listen to Byron's podcast from last week. So he's in Ephesus. So we have a time and we have a place, right? Ephesus before 62 AD, right? I'm not going to give you an exact date because I didn't look it up. But we know that Paul died in 62 or 64. So it's, he's in Ephesus before that. We know that according to Acts 19.28, Paul was preaching the gospel there. A guy named Demetrius, who was a silversmith, felt that his financial institution was coming under threat because people were converting to Christianity. So his little icons of Diana weren't being sold as well. So he drums up uh, a riot. And so Paul gets uh, accused, falsely accused, uh, arrested for starting the riot. And uh, the chant that was going on was right. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Right? That's, the, that's the chant. Uh, here's a little bit of thing about Diana. Diana is the Roman name for the Greek goddess Artemis. They built a temple in Ephesus to Diana slash Artemis. It was known as one of the seven wonders of the world. This was an elaborate piece of architecture that only made, that made one of the top seven wonders in the ancient world, along with the pyramids, along with the statue of Colossus, the hanging gardens of Babylon, and a couple more. So it's not like it was a little lean-to shack up on top of the hill. This was an elaborate building. The temple served not just as a religious center, it also served as the central banking system in Ephesus. All the money transactions happened in the temple. Financial institutions were built up around the temple, around the cult. That's the public worship of Artemis. <clears throat> Every year they had a celebration of Artemis, Diana, known as the Artemisian. And it happened for one month from March 24th to April 24th. Every year. Some other side notes about this. There was a chief priest that oversaw the temple, and that chief priest was a eunuch, like their version of transgenderism back in the day. <clears throat> and all the day-of-the-day -day stuff was managed by a bunch of maiden priestesses. So basically, we're looking at 14 to 20-year-old virgin girls doing all of the business for the temple. So that's important as we go down to things. <clears throat> Temple worship and its influences were part of the religious culture, right? Part of the religious and cultural norms of Ephesus. You grew up in Ephesus, you grew up in the shadow of the temple, in all of the dealings of the temple. 
Whether you were devoted to Artemis or not, it was in your everyday life. If you bought meat at the market, it was probably at some point sacrificed to Artemis. If you were buying, uh, exchanging money, it was going through the temple of Artemis. You couldn't get around the temple of Artemis. Artemis had such a permeated presence in Ephesus that it infused the culture, it infused the language, it infused people's mental patterns. Byron last week shared about the, the preacher that over in California um, and talked about the battlefield being a mental game. Here's a mental game right here. Everything in your culture is permeated by pagan theology, pagan thought, pagan value systems. And then you're trying to become a Christian in the midst of that. What things that you thought you knew are true and worth holding on to, and which ones do you abandon? Like that is like a wad of rubber bands that you're trying to untangle and make sense of. It's not easy. We all face it. So that's our, that, that's what's going on, right? So everything is influenced by this. So you have, because of the chief priest, right, you have this, such an elevation for Artemis and the femininity, because she was considered a virgin goddess. You have this um, femininity at the expense of masculinity, and so they, they castrate the priests. So your elites are now part and parcel with, to use our modern term, combating toxic masculinity back in Ephesus. And the day-to-day -day business is run by a bunch of young, inexperienced girls who are thrust into leadership because they're young, inexperienced girls, which is kind of their version of equity. It's not based on your competency. It's based on whatever your sexuality is, whatever your, your age is. And so it's, it's the 21st century, 2,000 years ago. Ephesus' financial structure is dependent on this whole cult, right? This whole system, the whole social structure is beholden to the cult, the worship of Artemis and her temple. That's our context. So when we get into these uh, passages now, uh, what Paul is telling Timothy, we need to look through that lens to see why he's writing what he's writing. And so I will posit some ideas uh, as to why that's happening. So, right out of the gate, Paul says, I urge then prayer, right? And he gives multiple types of prayer. Petitions, asking for something. Prayer, intercession, right? Intercessionary prayer, praying for others. Thanksgiving. Uh, he prays that, that these things happen. And he, he kind of couples them. It's like, uh, it's like, I urge that petitions and prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be given. Who, do, who are we praying for? Who are we interceding for? First of all, all men. Anybody. We're going to pray for anybody. Second, we're going to pray for the kings. Third, we're going to pray for anybody else in authority. So, little side note. <clears throat> we as Christians, uh, we might not like whenever certain politicians get into office or when other ones do. Scripture is really clear that in, in the end of the day, the thing that's important for us to do is to pray for them. So we can gripe and complain, or we can hail the praises of our favorite politicians. If we're not praying for them, whether we like them or not, we're not following Scripture. We pray for those in authority. So Paul says, we're going to pray for all men, pray for kings, pray for those in authority. And he gives the end goal. What's the end goal of this prayer, these urgings, this thing? Is that Christians, we, may lead a 
tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Uh, we probably read holiness up here in this passage. Like, we're praying for them so that it will go well for us, right? Like, that the we can be tranquil and quiet in our godliness and our holiness. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to change the hearts of the leaders or the politicians. It means it's going to change our heart. You know, like, like I, I've got Parler. You know, it's that, that app that came up because Twitter was, like, you know, canceling everybody and, and their brother. So I follow Parler. It's largely a conservative Twitter, pretty much. But I tell you what, I can't, I can't look at that for more than like five minutes without getting frustrated. I mean, it's all clickbait. I mean, like it's just like Twitter; it's clickbait, right? I mean, like, so I'm like weaning myself away from it now that I've realized this. But anytime I look up a news source, whether whether it skews left or skews right, I get frustrated. And so you know what I ought to be doing? Praying, getting a hold of the kingdom, like Byron did when he was frustrated with Comcast. It just, it just kept dropping out. Well, he can't get any of the work done for Ada Metal, right? So he's frustrated. He's going through representative after representative. I know I do this every week at, at the school. Until uh, he finally gets a hold of somebody. And while he's like chit-chatting with him, you know, he's like, hey, you know, what do you know about Jesus? And all of a sudden, the whole dynamic changes. Byron's frustration and anxiety melts away. And he's just covered with a wave of peace. That's the purpose of us praying for the leaders. It's not that, so we don't get arrested. I mean, like, it's good to pray for that. That is a petition. Mostly about getting our heart in line with the kingdom of heaven and letting the peace of God reign in us and not the frustrations of a divided world with fallen character. And he says, this is good in God's eyes. And he tells us why. Because God's desire is for all men to be saved and to know the truth. That's verse 4. God's desire is for all to be saved and to know the truth. We're going to see that verse 4 influences some of the rest of these verses. So, desire for all to be saved and to know the truth. So Paul explains the truth when he mentions it. And, okay, I, I, I lied. Here's another big word. He presents what we call a high Christology. What is, what is that? It's a high view of who Jesus is. That's what that is. It's this elevated, revered view of who Jesus is in the order of things. It's a reverent doctrine of Christ. So Paul explains the truth through this. This is, this is his Christology. This is his high view. There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus' testimony is given at the proper time. Jesus is a mediator. He's the way to our God. And there's only one God, right? Timothy's in Ephesus. These are polytheists. They believe in Artemis and Apollo and Zeus and Hera, you name it, Hades, whatever. Paul is reaffirming to Timothy what Timothy already knows. One God, one God, and only one way to that God, Jesus. Because Jesus made the sacrifice. So we can look at the context, right? So we're going to look at this. I gave you the context. And we read through what Paul is writing specifically to Timothy. And based on some of the things that he wrote, I believe that we can, quote-unquote, reverse engineer some of the social dynamics in Ephesus. Because Paul wouldn't be writing about it if it wasn't an issue, right? Just like Deuteronomy has no passage about thou shalt not walk on the ceiling, because it's really not, one, it's not moral-based, and, and you can't really naturally walk on the ceiling without some sort of suspension. So, I mean, like, 
why, why would it be in there? Because it's just not going to be done. So anyway, that's a side note. doesn't make any sense. I'll move on. Paul gives specific guidelines for worship. This is important. He said, we're gonna, these are influenced by verse 4. They come to a knowledge of the truth. He says, men, pray with lifted holy hands. All right? Now, I don't know about you, but usually when I pray, I'm not doing this. Sometimes when we're worshiping, right, we're singing, hands up, surrender, whatever. When I'm going, you know, like in my bed or on my couch, I'm not going, oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. We don't do that. <laughs> so why does he say that? Because that's how things were done. That was, I mean, you can look at uh, frescoes, even from like the ancient uh, Assyrians and stuff. Their posture for prayer was this. That was a standard posture. I mean, like, you know, okay, so Assyria, we're talking like 1,500 years ago, right? 15, no, 3,500 years ago. My math, sorry, B.C., A.C., A.D., right? But that was something that was common in the Middle East is like these prayers, this is what you did. Um, you, can talk, you can get some symbolic interpretation if you look on Google. I won't get into it. But that's kind of how it looked, right? And so Paul's kind of fallen into that. He's like, okay. Lift your hands up when you pray. But it's not just lift your hands up. He said, lift up your holy hands. And we can look at um, like biblical symbology, right? Like, like what, is, what, what are things symbolized uh, according to Scripture? Hands could represent the way of life. So if that's the case, then Paul's saying, when you pray, you lift up your hand, your holy hands because that's reflecting the holy life that you're living day in and day out. Be holy, right? Live a holy life. So when you pray, your prayers are holy. So that's what he's calling. And he gives examples. No wrath, no dissension. So what's happening? Reverse engineering. Men in Ephesus were likely given over to tempers, to wrathful behavior, to destructive behavior, right? Destroying the community, destroying relationship with God. And no dissension. They're dividing. They're causing factions. I mean, we see that happening throughout the church uh, in, the, in the ancient world. There's no place for the behavior of fallen character. Paul's just eliminating that. And he's saying to the men, you need to step up. You need to live holy. And you need to stop this selfishness. Because what is, what is wrath and anger? It's, 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 a, it's a selfish burst of emotion because somebody feels slighted for something the end of the day, that's basically what it is. So men were given to wrath and dissensions, and they were possibly missing a healthy masculinity, right? So we have this extreme elevation of feminism uh, in Ephesus, kind of like what we see today, where basically men are just, just lambasted for even being men, just by the nature of it. And that affects the, the, the psyche of men. It affects the psyche of, of a, a culture. I mean, like... Uh, Right now, there's, there's less marriage happening. Uh, men aren't stepping on the plate. Sociologists hate to go there. I don't, really, I don't really have a lot of value for sociologists. I think it's a pseudoscience that's just made up to get grants for universities to pad their positions. That's my opinion. It's a whole other thing. But, you know, they came along in the 1890s, something like that, and they introduced the term uh, adolescent, and it basically meant somebody who's, like, basically pubescent up to 18 or 20 based on emotional and, uh, like, social development and maturity. 
the last 15, 20 years, they've taken that age bracket and looked at the emotional maturity and the character maturity of 18 to 20 year olds in 1890. Okay, you know, that's when they kind of transitioned into manhood, you know, these milestones. At least for men now, today, are not even getting close to reaching that in their mid-30s. And so now we have a 20-year gap where men are just adolescents. They don't have the, the mental, the emotional, the social maturity of somebody 15 years younger than them that lived in 1898. So now we have this 20-year gap where men were learning to become men, and now they're still living in basements. Like they can be on their parents' health insurance till they're 26 years old. Right? I mean, like, what's going on here? Because there's no respect for coming of age for men. There's no respect for men being men because women want to be women. And apparently that's believed to be a zero-sum game. So if a woman's going to be a woman, then a man can't be a man. I... So anyway, it gets messy. But it's happening in Ephesus. And a lot of the social unrest we're seeing today are things that we can see reflected in Ephesus. Like, what do you do when you have a bunch of guys who are emasculated socially, have nothing better to do, they still have pent-up testosterone because they're still biologically male, right? You could watch the, uh, the, the Matt Walsh yeah. you know, documentary, What is a Woman, right? Um, but they have no social outlet for being men. So what does that do? It leads them into more base behaviors, outbursts of anger, right? 15-year-olds do that. 35-year-olds don't. But now we have Demetrius, who sparks a riot. And one man can't just be a riot. He's got half the town now, right? Probably half a bunch of emasculated, socially inept, immature men ready just to, to burst at whatever to be outraged are now outraged to Paul. Wow, that looks like a lot of the news headings today. So this is happening. So Paul's saying, curb that back. Grow up. Be a man. Do the right thing, right? And he, he brings in this, this, this wonderful phrase, this wonderful term that he also includes in Galatians 5.22. And that, that phrase is self-control. Control yourself, men. Don't be given over to these angers and the outbursts and these destructive behaviors happening because this culture has permeated their minds. And he's saying, if you're a Christian, you're called to come out of that. You're called to be a man of God. So this is the men. He gets to the women here in a minute. You're called to be a man of God. And this is what a man of God looks like. Uh, and so he gives them those examples. Control your anger. Control your wrath. Live holy lives. Be holy unto the Lord. And do the godly thing. Give up your selfishness for the betterment of the church, your community now, because your affirmation doesn't come from the temple. Your affirmation doesn't come from adolescent, teenage to early 20-year-old virgin girls who have no life experience because they're priestesses. Your affirmation comes from your heavenly father. It doesn't come from the socialist elite. Uh, socialist, oh, there I go. <laughs> Betraying my politics. The, the social elite, right, who tout a toxic masculinity that the only way that you can, you can be 
honored by your deity is to give up your masculinity. That's not where your affirmation comes from. It comes from your heavenly father. I stumbled across this quote the other day. Um, I like it. Maybe you guys like it. Maybe you don't. I'm going to share it anyway. It's from Ben Shapiro. Um, so maybe you like it, maybe you don't. I'm going to share it anyway. This is what he says. Ultimate manliness. This is his, his definition of ultimate manliness. Get married. Protect your family. Provide a space for them to grow in safety and security. Provide for the family. And then give them roles and responsibilities. Because this is what a man does. The way we run our household, um, I still say to you know at this point that uh, we, we have an egalitarian household. What does that mean? That Shane and I have the same amount of authority in the household. <clears throat> what does it look like practically? Whoever's better at something is the one that really takes ownership of that area. That's what that looks like. Like, am I better at swinging an axe to, to chop wood? Probably, so I do that, right? Is she better at breastfeeding? <laughs> Probably. So, she plays to her strengths, I play to my strengths, and we work together on the stuff that we're weak in. That's how I view egalitarianism. I don't believe it's a zero-sum game. I think Shannon can embrace the fullness of her God-given femininity at the same time that I'm embracing the fullness of my God-given masculinity. And, and I don't have to dominate her because of that. Because I'm not going to listen to Cosmo magazine about how men are terrible and how women need to seduce men to get their way. I just, you know what? That's not gospel. That's not godly. So, what do you do for as a man? Well, you get married. You know what? It forces you to grow up. Like I was. Now I was. I was a pretty well. Sh Shannon picked me before I picked her because. She, and I'll, I'll say it this way. She is a much wiser woman than I am a man. Uh, she picked me before I picked her. She has told people, and she tells me, the reason she picked me is because I had lived on my own for 10 years. I wasn't in mom's basement. I had a job. I was doing my own laundry and cooking my own food. You know? I, and, you know, like, by the time she met me, I was already, like, kind of pastoring a church with Byron here. So, I, I see what's going on here. I see what's going on here. They've known me for 20 years. They, they got a little side conversations going on here. <laughs> no, not you. No, okay. So, that's why she picked me. Because she said, okay. Oh, also, like, her first major, like, exposure to me was me uh, excommunicating somebody out of the group. And she was like, oh yeah, I want that guy. <laughs> you know, but, but it wasn't because I had the gall to get up there and kick somebody out. Anybody can do that. It's that afterwards I sat down on my knees and I cried. Because I loved my church so much and I saw the damage happening. and We didn't want to do it, but it was something we had to do. And she said, that's what a godly man does. He'll protect my family. He'll take care of us. That's what, oh man, I didn't expect to get all teary-eyed here. <laughs> okay. All right. 
What, what did God tell, uh, tell Job? Good up your loins and stand like a man. Ah, we're going to do it. So, thank you. <laughs> okay, so, so he's saying, men, be men. Be defined by your Heavenly Father with the masculinity and the testosterone and the responsibility that God has put on your shoulders. That's what he's calling men to do. Because for so long in Ephesus, they'd been beaten down by this, this masculinity is evil and should not be celebrated and should be denigrated at the expense of elevating Artemis, our goddess. And Paul's saying, trash all of that and be a man. So that's his message to the men. So that when they come to pray, they can raise those hands up and those hands will be holy. And that means that their lifestyles will be holy and godly. So that's to the men. All right, now to the women. Oh, here it comes. <clears throat> Dress modestly and discreetly. Thank you. <sighs> okay, so this is where context is important because otherwise we're all going to be dressing like, uh, like those off, offshoots of the Seventh-day Adventists down in Texas. And we're not about that. Dress modestly and discreetly. Some of the examples that Paul used here are reflective of the cultural norms and the values of the day. We, can, we see this happening in, in Corinth as well. That braided hair isn't, isn't bad in and of itself. I mean, if that was the case, I would refuse to braid Alora's hair when she asked me to. But I do it because she's my daughter and I love her. And it's terrible. But she's happy with it. And I can't do like a proper braid, so I have to like do like the ponytail braid from the 90s where you put the ponytail in and then you braid the ponytail. <laughs> it's the only thing I can do. She likes it, so I do it. But she knows if she wants a proper braid, she goes to mommy. Or, or to Casey if Casey's around. Um, but Paul's like, don't braid your hair, don't wear gold, don't wear pearls, don't wear expensive clothes. It's not that those things are in and of themselves bad. It's that in those things in that culture reflected their pursuit of modern fashion. That it is more expensive, I mean, more important to be uh, considered as fashion forward and being a person of means, gold, right, than it is to be viewed as a godly woman. So you're having a cultural clash with what it is to be a godly woman and what it is to be respected in a pagan society. This is what he's coming up against. As a side note, a lot of these braided hair, gold, gold plates in your hair, pearls, expensive clothing, were also a cultural symbol for a woman who is wanting to say that they are relationally and sexually available. So you come into a church and you get gold braided into your hair and you're wearing the finest Gucci with the highest heels, it's basically saying... Hey, boys, I'm open for business. And there's no place for that in the church. Because Paul's saying, you're not to entice men, right? He said, you're there to serve the living God, to be part of the community, and to work to build that community. That's what he's saying. Can you braid your hair? Absolutely. Can you wear a gold necklace? Absolutely. Can you wear a nice pair of high heels? Sure. Don't put your value in it. Don't, don't do it to impress other people. Do it because like, you like it, right? Like, like hey, I, 
there were some expensive clothes out there. I look, look at the price tag, and I'm like, man, I wouldn't wear that if that was $5. You know, it just looks so gaudy or garish. I wouldn't wear it. Give me some blue jeans and a t-shirt. I'm a practical guy. I got this vest because it has like nine pockets on it. You know, I love, you know, like I've got some dress vests for like special occasions. But this is my daily driver. I like that I can put my handkerchief in here. And I like that I can put my wireless mic receiver here. And then right here I got my phone. I, like, I love it. Right? Practical. I'm not all about the expensive clothes. However, in this culture, in Ephesus at this time, much like the culture today, Paul's addressing the women because they're getting their value from their social status. They're getting their value from the clothes they wear. They're getting their value in their ability to seduce men. Whether they actually do seduce them or not, it's kind of raising the men's attention. Right? That's where they're getting their value. And is that not what our culture is now teaching us to do for our women is to, as they're coming of age, to sexualize them, to get them in the, the worst clothes that they can wear. I mean, it's nothing new under the sun, right? Nothing new under the sun. So, so he says, you know, don't be doing this stuff. Also, he says, women must quietly receive instruction with entire submission. Now, this is that verse that, that a lot of people would just wish was not in the Bible. Like, if that was really the case, I mean, like, really... None of you women should be speaking when you walk in these doors. It's like, not a word, not a peep. Just silent, go sit in the other room, be quiet, and listen to what the men say. That's basically the, the gist we get out of this. It's a quote, what's his name? Inigo Mentoya, right? From the Prince's Pride. That's word you use. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> so let's look at the context and go back to that verse. And see if this sheds any more light on that, other than like, no women at any time in any church should ever say anything. I don't think that's feasible, practical, or even done on, on, on any regular basis whatsoever. <sighs> okay, are you ready? Let's dive in. We're going to recap the dynamics of the cultural context. You've got a city that is pretty much the financial institution, the social mores, the system is overseen by an emasculated male who's been castrated, and all the day-to-day -day has been taken over by young virgin priestesses who really don't have much life experience. That's our context. So young virgin priestesses serving, ruling, managing would be accustomed to having authority and authoritative voices in a culture where masculinity is not respected. That's their normal way of thinking, right? In this world, in this town, their normal way of thinking is that my voice is more important than a man's voice. And it's also noted, historically, that most of these priestesses, they do it for a short period of time, and then they leave the priesthood, and they go on and they get married to a bunch of emasculated men. And so now you've got a bunch of alpha women married to beta men that they don't really respect. Well, that's not a good foundation for a thriving relationship, right? So, and I'm not an alpha male. I'm not like, take the bull by the horns and just force everybody to do what I'm going to do. But as Shannon says, I'm a dude. I do dude things, right? Like, I fix things. I like to learn things. I like to challenge myself. I'm a, I like to be responsible. 
take ownership of stuff. Sometimes I don't want to, but I do because it needs to be done. I'm not, I'm not the shining example. I just, I can only really speak from authority from my own experience. So that's why I'm doing that. So don't think that I'm like, oh, this, this bastion of awesome manliness. I just do what I, I believe is right, what God calls me to do, and I try to love my family the best I can. Simple as that. So, you've got a whole bunch of young girls who are used to running a city and managing the day-to-day of things, now marrying a bunch of inexperienced men, right, to use our phrase, living in mom's basement until they're 36. And so the women are used to dominating the men in this culture. And what happens when Paul comes and miracles start happening? Right? People start getting, oh, oh, this is, this is legit. We want to be a part of this. Right? There's power in this. Families come to the faith. Former priests, priestesses, and their husbands start coming to the church. But what happens whenever you need like order and organization in, in uh, a, a community? Well, what's the woman's first go-to to do. Step up and take authority. That's what they're used to. And the men aren't used to. And Paul's trying to challenge that because it's not just because it's a man's role to lead. It's that he needs the men to learn to grow up and be men by taking responsibility. So it's not denigrating the women. It's challenging the men to step up. That's what's going on here. And having been raised up in a pagan priesthood, how are they going to know what parts of those principles are transferable into the church and which need to be abandoned because that's a pagan thing and it's not a God thing? And so what he's saying is like, <clears throat> so ladies, don't just jump up and start taking authority. Uh, whenever we read that passage, assume authority, the, excuse me, the Greek for that is basically a forceful take of the authority. So he's saying, women, don't forcefully take authority away from men. That's, that's the connotation that he's using. Don't wrest these, these things out of the men, men's hands and start doing them. Because I'm trying to teach the men to be men. And it's not denigrating femininity. It's teaching men to be men so that you can both grow and thrive in this thing called the kingdom of heaven. And so they're accustomed to this culture where women dominated socially and spiritually, and it's easy for them just to, 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 to assume that authority. And Paul says, no. And also, like, I've, I've put some guys in leadership specifically so that they can teach these new ways uh, of Christ. And so if you come in and you take authority, you might start teaching from your old habits because you've been an old priestess, and then start negating all of the truth. So that's where verse 4 comes back. What is God's will? All to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And he would, Paul would say the pure truth. So I've, I've spent you know, however many years with these five people, training them on the ins and outs of Scripture, training them on the ins and outs of the kingdom of heaven, so that they are equipped to teach the rest of the community. You're coming out of pagan mental patterns that are still influenced by your culture. We don't want to muddy the waters. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that no, men, no women can ever, ever speak or, or no women can ever have authority for all of history. In this specific context, I don't want the full pure truth to be muddied 
by the confusion that comes from working in a pagan temple. That's all that is. That's all that is, in my opinion. You can disagree one way or the other. That's how I see this. Women, learn, sit and learn from these, these men that I've spent time developing. Maybe one day, when you really get it, right? When you fully understand it, you can join their ranks. Why do I say that? Because that sounds like it's so contrary to what Paul's saying here. It's not much to go on, I'll admit. The very end of Romans, he gives a benediction, starts listing off names. There's a name in there, Junia. Maybe you've heard of Junia, maybe you have not heard of Junia. His, uh, what's that, what's that, between commas? Uh, help me, English class. Um, so yeah, you got something, you got something that expounds it, and a positive, not a positive, something like that. Anyway. Uh, so he goes, Junia, comma, who is among the apostles. When we look at scripture, what is the highest rank a person can get to in the New Testament, in the New Covenant? Apostle. So you're telling me somehow in this totally only men can lead anything church, a woman found a way to be considered by the author of two-thirds of the New Testament as an apostle. Okay, something's not computing. So anyway, okay, uh, I'm getting the, the go mark. It's almost noon. So, okay, I'm going to summarize this all up. I'm going to just jump to the end. In the conclusion, <clears throat> Ephesians were inclined toward feminine worship and deriding masculinity. Paul's seeking to overturn that. Healthy feminism, healthy masculinity. Learn the scriptures. So what's the, what's the to-do? I'm just going to throw this. Men and women alike, here are your to-dos. Develop godly character. Develop godly character. How do you do that? First, you've got to know the scripture. You've got to know what God's ways are, and then practice those. Ask the Lord to make you hungry to learn that. Next, act and interrelate with self-control. Don't be given over to anger. Don't be given over to, to uh, wrath. Don't be given over to whatever, gossip. You, you name your vice. Self-control. Contain yourself. Work toward the unity of the church. Work toward the unity of the community in holiness. Last, don't adopt the values of the world, whether it's fashion or finance or prestige. Don't pursue that. Grow godly. Grow a godly parent. Um, family means parenting well, women and men. Keep the faith. Practice love. Practice holiness and self-control. That's what I think Paul is telling Timothy in Ephesus. So next week we're going to talk about church leadership and getting down to the personal character as spelled out here as that applies to working in leadership. So anyway, I'm going to have Fine come up, uh, do our final song, and close us out. But uh, there's uh, 1 Timothy 2. Sorry I went a little bit long. Hello again. This is Pastor Todd. I pray the Lord uses my message today to strengthen your walk with God. If you are blessed by this message and would like to support the ministry of the Gathering Place financially, I encourage you to use our online giving portal at tgpchicago.org. The portal uses PayPal's secure site so none of your information is compromised. Once again, thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. God bless you and have a great week.